0: We are in Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 28, we just finished chapter 27 last week and I'm going to read the last verse of Genesis chapter 27, so that's verse number 46. It says, Rebecca said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So remember what the scripture said is that is that Esau, Esau had taken two daughters from the daughters of Heth who were descendants of Canaan and and uh, they caused real trouble for Isaac and Rebekah because it says in chapter 26, verse 35, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And uh, so this is going to be, this affects what's in chapter 28. We're going to start reading from verse 1, Genesis 28, verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob. And blessed him, and charged him, and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham, to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take to himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Ne- Nebalah. Okay, so what we see here is that is that Rebecca, remember, wanted to send away her son Jacob because she was afraid that her other son Esau was going to kill him for the deception that had happened in in uh, getting the blessing, even though the blessing was rightfully his because he had already sold the birthright and the blessing should go on with the with the birthright, but he had deceived his father. Esau was going to kill him. Thinking that his father was going to die soon, Jacob and Esau at this time—you might think they were young, dashing young men. They were twins, and they were both 77 at this time. So they lived—they lived longer than we do now. I think both of the, uh, uh, Esau lives to be about 114. Jacob lives to be older than that. I think Jacob is 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 uh, um, lives to be something in his 140s. So in in a sense, they were sort of middle-aged. Even though they were they were seventy seven and and uh, uh, so he charged them he says don't take a child from the daughters of Heth. He was very specific. Remember, we want to encourage families to be involved in in the decisions of spouses and and uh, uh, to the extent that that uh, uh, you want your family to be involved in this process because marriage is hard and it's hard. Any way you do it, there's a lot, a lot of things you gotta work through, but if you have the family from both sides standing with you, it's an enormous help. And eventually you're gonna need their help. You're gonna need their help with kids, you're gonna need their help with down payments on a house, you're gonna need their help in all sorts of things. So it, it's good to, to have that, that sort of thing if you can get it. So he charged them, don't take uh, any daughters from the daughters of, don't, any uh, spouses from the daughters of Canaan, but you're to go to your mother's brother's home and take and that's four hundred and fifty miles away. So Rebecca's intent on this was first of all that he he, he get away from there. This is four hundred and fifty miles away. This is back into the area of Iraq and they couldn't go directly across the desert. You had to go up to the trade routes and around. And uh uh and go there, you're gonna be safe from your brother. She said I'll call you back in a matter of days and it turned out it was twenty years before he ever came back. She never saw him again. So she never saw her, her favorite son again, which was the price that she had paid for deceiving her husband in this way. Uh, so you really never get away with things in life. uh, uh, Things have a way of catching up with us. And, and, uh, now there is no express law. At this time, there was no law against how they married. The law came later through the, through Moses. And again, under Moses, there was no express rule against marrying a first cousin. Uh, there, there was against marrying a, a daughter or a stepdaughter or an aunt or a grandchild or a step-grandchild. There were lots of restrictions, but not marrying cousins. There was not a restriction. In the U.S., there's about half of the states in the U.S. that restrict marrying first cousins. Um, uh, it, it was thought that that uh, uh, there are genetic problems that come in from marrying first cousins, but with more studies there's not that much that not that much danger that comes in from that unless it happens over and over again that there's lots of first cousins married in other parts of the world there's a lot of first co- cousin marriages and particularly in the islamic world there's a lot of first cousin marriages because it's just just the nature of of of, of what they allow men the, the women that they allow men to relate to it's just family members that they can relate to a lot of times, or, or that they allow. Women are allowed to relate to family members only, so they end up marrying a lot around cousins. And, and uh, there are genetic defects that you see coming in, in when there's families where there's that's done over and over again. But, but um, there was never an express law against it in the Bible, even when the, the, the law came. And then it's interesting that he he tells him first, he says, arise in in verse two, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. So he's got now an express blessing. This is very different than the type of blessing that he had prayed over Jacob formerly thinking Jacob was Esau. He could not bring himself to give him a real Abrahamic blessing. So here he now invokes the God of Abraham. So he's connecting him in this patriarchal line that went from Abraham to Isaac. Now it's going to Jacob. In verse four, may he also give you the blessings of Abraham so that to you and your descendants with you, you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. So in other words, he's now telling him not only that this land is yours and the land, the land is to you and to your descendants. That's what he's telling him. This tremendous blessing of the land, which is again coming through to him. So the blessing of the land is coming through to him in this charge. This is a very different blessing. And you see the power before the power was lost because he thought he was praying over Esau. He could not bring himself to walk in the things of God and pray in power. Now that he's right with God, he's gotten that straightened out. Then the, pa- <clears throat> the power returns. It's the same thing in our lives. If we're not walking right with God, the power of God in evangelism, the power of God in sharing, the power of God in witnessing goes away. It really becomes passivated. He gets this right and the power comes back on him and he can pray as he ought to pray over his son. It says, then Isaac sent Jacob away in verse five. And he went to Paddan Aram to, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. So he goes away. He listens to his father. And then in the next chapter, we'll study in, in a few weeks of how we'll see the dream that he has on the way, how his faith is, is, is Jacob's faith is deeply renewed through this experience. But now what I want to focus on is in verse six. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife to himself from there and that he blessed him and he charged him saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. So he sees that Jacob was charged by his father Isaac to not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Parents have a very good way of seeing who would be good for us and who wouldn't be good. And this is why it's good to, to give them some place in this. They, 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 uh, they have some good way in this. Then it, it says here that, that uh, uh, when he saw this, he said, don't take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And it's like, uh oh, I have two wives from the daughters of Canaan. And uh, uh, he really didn't like disappointing his his uh, his mother. I'm getting some feedback here. Could you turn the volume down just a little bit from the master, and uh, uh, maybe I'll, I'll get a little less feedback. And so so you you see here that that um, uh, he really didn't like disappointing his father. And and so now he's learning that that uh, there's this this is going on with with uh, his father doesn't want this woman from the land of Canaan. He saw, he saw displeased his father in verse 6. So Esau saw the daughters of Canaan displeased his father, Isaac. He didn't care what displeased his mother. He didn't care. I mean, she, she, up in verse 46, I mean, his mother was quite displeased. Doesn't care about that. After what his mother did to him, that relationship was now very strained. And so she actually lost both of her sons on that day. She said, I don't want to be bereaved of both sons. She was bereaved of both sons on that day. Jacob, she would never see again. And Esau, she lost all relationship. But Esau still loved his father and his father loved him. But he saw that it displeased his father. So what did he do? He goes to try to fix the thing. I know what I'll do is I'll marry another wife from the descendants of Ishmael. So he says, and Esau went to Ishmael. And married, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So in other words, he went to the family of Ishmael. So so Abraham had had, had uh, uh, Isaac and and Ishmael. He goes back to that side of the family, again a non-blessing side he goes to, and he marries again within that line. So in his desire to fix this thing, he ends up getting another wife and messing it up all the more. What we see, a pattern in the scriptures that we see is that, yes, there were men who had multiple wives, and in every case in the scriptures that is demonstrated to us, the men who had more than one wife, there was trouble in the home. There was trouble in the home. There were restrictions that came on later in the New Testament. It says for an overseer, meaning one, a man who was going to oversee a church, we might call him a pastor or a minister, they were to have one wife. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us whether that one wife was one wife at a time or one wife, one wife, period. You know, it doesn't, doesn't tell us in the New Testament what it meant. But we see that when this, in the New Testament, particularly in in, in, uh, 1 Corinthians, when it talks about this, it talks about a husband and his wife. It doesn't talk about a husband and his wives. The intent was always that there should be a man and his wife. And so the intent in this was that there should be a man and his wife, and there were always troubles. When a man had multiple wives. And so the demonstration of scripture, this is, remember, God writes to us in this way. He doesn't give us in the New Testament, well, He tells us certain things that we're to do and not do, but many things He demonstrates for us through the lives of people. It's very much like when my, 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 my daughter, she, she lives in Israel and she works a lot in, in the relationship between Palestinians and Israelis and uh um she 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 writes a lot on the plight of some of the palestinians the christian palestinians the things that they go through not just the christian palestinians but some of the times their plight and she writes these articles and i and i told her uh um you know what happens is you write these articles and you're trying to have an impact but very few people read those articles Because you know they're buried in these obscure journals. I I know about this. You know I'm a chemist. I mean, how many people really read my articles? Like maybe four people on Earth read my articles, and they're usually graduate students who are forced to read it. Read this for the class, and then only four people in the class end up doing the assignment. So I told you, you're, you're you're much better off writing something like Uncle Tom's Cabin, which they say might have united the Civil War. So what was done was to write through fiction, based on fact writing through fiction and then it talked about the southern slave owners that many of them were nice people meaning no harm but then the harm that was coming to the to the african slaves as a result of this and so so uh, that may have united ignited the civil war it says so to write through fiction so i encouraged her to write stories of people that you meet and write it within sort of a novel type of an account. That's what God does for us in the Bible. He gives us the lives of people to look at. And what He does is He says, okay, you want to have more than one wife? Here's what it looks like. Here's what your home is going to look like. This is what it's going to be like. And you you should be saying, whoa, you know, I want to get this thing right. So Esau tries to go and fix this thing and it runs into a real mess. Rather than repenting of what he had done, rather than trying to go back and say, Lord, what have I done wrong here? He tries to fix it himself. And in trying to fix it himself, he brings more trouble into his life by getting now another wife into his home. So, so often when we try to do something and fix something without God's directive, we end up making it worse. So Rebecca had tried to fix this thing where Isaac was going to give the blessing to, to, uh, Esau rather than to Jacob. She tried to fix this thing. So what, how'd she do it? She did it deceptively. She deceptively tried to fix this thing and it brought in this mess into her life and into her son's life and, 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 and the troubles that ensued. Hagar tried to fix the situation where she couldn't bear a child to Abraham. She tried to, fi- I'm sorry, uh, uh, Sarah had tried to, to fix this thing. So she brought in Hagar into the marriage. Again, real problems. So sometimes in trying to fix things, we make matters worse. So, you know, a lot of times I will talk of my past failures, failures that I've done in the past and talk about the situation. So let me, let, let me mention like a failure that I've, I've, I've had in the past where, where I was really doing something wrong and God used something to catch me and to get my attention so that then I could repent of it and try to get the matter fixed. And, I, and it, it, it's always hard for us to speak about our weaknesses in life, but it's not that bad if I talk about my past problems and the recovery that I've had. And so, for example, my career just rocketed. God was so good. And I and I, I just prayed all the time that God's blessing would be there. And it was there. And my career rocketed. And I remembered looking at, at my struggling colleagues and wondering, you know, if if I never said this to them, just within myself, I said it to myself. Only to myself, not even to my wife did I say this, but just within myself, I would say, you know, if, if you guys would just write a lot of proposals and spend, you know, a lot more time writing proposals, you'd be all right. And then I remember that, that there was this, this judgmental attitude that was coming in. I never voiced it to anyone, but isn't it interesting because God knows our thoughts. So what happened is my proposals, my, my renewals started not getting funded you get a couple renewals not funded and you are in a world of hurt in my business. You're funding all these people, you got this big group, and then all of a sudden you're not getting any more money and you got all these people, what are you gonna do? And, and and you pay all their salaries. So for those of you who don't know, the graduate students who work in my laboratory, I have to get grant money, I have to walk around hat in hand to all these agencies to try to get money to pay them. I pay their tuition, I pay their salary, I pay their their uh, uh, their uh, portions of of I pay their 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 um, workers' compensation insurance. So I have to pay all of this in addition to all their supplies and their analytical needs. And and so even though a graduate student might only get paid twenty three thousand dollars a year, I have to raise fifty five thousand dollars a year for a graduate student because the university takes what's called an indirect cost cut. They take something off the top because we're using, you know, we're essentially renting their laboratory. So it's a lot of money you got to do. And so if you have 30 people working in your laboratory, I mean, think about those numbers. And some of those people are postdocs, which are about hundred thousand dollars a year once you pay all their their their, their costs. So you got to raise a lot of money. You have a few grants that don't come through. You're like, uh-oh. And I remember I a few renewals that were not funded and I was sweating bullets. I was praying and crying out to God. And then he reminded me, well, if you just write some proposals and work a little harder, you, you'll you uh, you'll do just fine. And I cried out to the Lord, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner. Forgive me for judging my neighbor. Forgive me for that. And I remember the, the chair of the department spotted me some money. He, he lent me some money. He said, okay, when you get a grant, we'll sh-, and, and, and I was able to recover. But it was like, a year of just you know constantly dealing with university accountants calling me you know bean counters, you know you 're short on this oh i didn 't know i 'm so glad you called me and told me you know and and so you 're always having to juggle things and, and uh god God really reminded me of this, and so um, we're getting, a, this is nothing you can fix. We, we've we got this transfer mechanism. So it, it's, it's going up into the kitchen. So people are working and some feedback from that. They they wanted to be able to hear the message from kit from the kitchen, but in any case, so we'll get through this. So that was my past failure. And I showed you how it came through. All right. I repented and it came through. Let me tell you one of my current failures, because that's much harder. All right. And, and you say, well, why, why would you do this? Well, there's multiple reasons why I would do this, but, um, One verse is is from 2 Corinthians 12.9 says this, 2 Corinthians 12.9. It says, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I will boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I have found over the years when I share out of my weakness, when I share, you know, here's the problems that I am having, it encourages a lot of people because they see I'm real. I'm not this superhuman guy that, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm every bit of the person that my wife says that I am, (laughs) you know, with all of these uh, failures that she reminds me of. And, and, uh, um, so, so let, let me, let me talk about a current thing. so. What what Shireen and I have seen in the class is that over a period of about a year and a half, over a period, of about a year and a half, the class size has cut in half. And and we've seen natural sinusoidal uh, 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 class attendance over the years. We've been doing this for 20 years. This is actually our 21st year doing this class. So when we started this class, most of you weren't even born. Alright? That's how long we've been doing this. And, and so, you know, you, you, you'll have seniors and they graduate, so you lose one-fourth of your people every year. And, and so that's what happens with a college-based ministry. You lose one-fourth of your people each year. If you do seniors ministry, you're constantly losing people because they die. I mean, this is, this is what happens. I mean, it's true. I mean, talk to the seniors class. I mean, they, they just die off. And then we also lose people because they like Jake, they get married and they move to the young marriage class where they, you know, do things like young married couples. I mean, so you get married, you, you know, we lose people in that way. And uh, uh, but this this was more striking. And I was just asking the Lord, well, maybe because maybe because I turned 60 this year and it's just hard for a 60 year old to relate to to, you know, 20 year olds. Maybe, maybe that's it. And I was coming up with all these things. And I'm asking people, you know, what do you think? And everybody's got an opinion. Everybody who's never run a class, never taught a class, has an opinion on what I should do to fix it. No, but that's okay. I mean, we, we we brought them over and we asked them, and it was interesting all the the different views they had on what we're doing wrong. Everybody is an expert on what we're doing wrong. I felt like the football coach, you know. Where everybody is well, If you only did this, if you just listen to me, if you. I know no stats, nothing about the players, nothing. I hardly know their names, but if the guy would just do, why did you put him in there? Why did you run that play? Everybody's an expert. So everybody was an expert counseling me on, on, on what the problem was. Here's your problem. And so, you know, I just really started crying out to the Lord, and the Lord reminded me from a passage from 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, David, David who is an established king, he is established in his kingdom, God gave him victory <clears throat> on every side, sort of like where I am in my career you know god's given me great victory god's given me great victory in in, in these things and uh, um, and so what happened was was uh, let me get more specific i remember I remember uh um, a couple of years ago uh maybe a year and a half ago or something when, when or two years ago, I would come to the Wednesday night prayer, Wednesday night prayer for the churches held in this room. And I would come to the Wednesday night prayer and, and there'd be like, you know, from the whole church, I, there'd be like, I don't know, 20 people in the room, you know, 20 people, something like that. And a lot of times, uh, two thirds of the class was seniors. You know, the, this, the senior, the old women never stopped praying. I mean, if you got a grandmother praying for you, you're done for. I mean, you, you're, God's going to answer. I mean, the old women just never stop praying. Old men, they turn into curmudgeons and they don't, they, they just complain. But old women don't stop praying. And, and, uh, you know, it's a bunch of old women in here. And I remember thinking in my heart, again, I never voiced it. I never voiced it. I just thinking in my heart, well, you know, if you really prayed with earnestness, people would start coming. So I started this little prayer group. To pray for this class, which takes place at, 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 uh, 8.45 to 9.15 every Sunday morning in room 212. And, and, uh, if it were not for Olivia, I would be praying alone in there. You know, I begged everybody, please come at least once a month. And Olivia comes, and then sometimes Jan and jo- Joel come, but, you know, that's about it. And a lot of times I'm praying alone. You know, I got all these people in the class, and I'm praying alone. <clears throat> so here I was judging These other people and this prayer group just can't get off the ground. And in my heart, you know, I'm thinking, you know, God bless this class. Yeah, we're growing. You know, if if they would just preach the word, I mean, people would just be coming. And I'm preaching the word and I'm preaching the word and I just see the class size going down and breaks my heart. You know, and I said, Lord, what am I doing wrong? And then as I was, I was just, Crying out to God, he reminded me of 1 Chronicles 21. And that's what we're going to read, verse 1. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David now is going to number all the fighting men of Israel. He numbered them previously. There was no problem. When you're numbering them, when you're a small band, I mean, that's fine. But now David is established in his kingdom. And it was almost as an act of pride. I am going to number now all the fighting men who work for me. Some, some scholars think that he numbered them either out of pride like that or because he wanted to exact more taxes from them. So he wanted to know <clears throat> the complete census. So David, <clears throat> verse 2 of first Chronicles 21. So David <clears throat> said to Joab, said to Joab, and to the princes of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. And bring me word that we may know their number. Remember, Beersheba's down in the south. We've talked a lot about that. Dan was way up in the north. So from, from top to bottom, from Texas to Minnesota, from, from New York to, to, to L.A., number them all. And Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord, the king. Are not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be the cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab was not a very godly man. He was the general, but still he knew this was wrong. And he warned David, don't do it. You're going to bring guilt on Israel. But David knew better. So David said, no, do it. Verse 5, Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David And all Israel were one, one million one hundred thousand men who drew the sword. And Judah was four hundred and seventy thousand men who drew the sword. So you see, Judah was a very large tribe. It was, it was about half the size of all of the rest of Israel. And so they had about 1.5 million people here. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. So Joab didn't even number Benjamin. or the tribe of Levi because he said, enough, I just can't do it anymore. So he just reported that that the the number that he had. Verse 7, God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, go speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. Go. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemy overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, consider what answer shall I return to him who sent me? David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of man. The prophet comes to to David and he says, God's offering you three penalties. One is that you could have you could uh, 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 he, he says to him, you, you could have several months Consider what you want. Do you, do you want uh, three months, uh, uh, three years of famine, or three months for your enemies to come in and just sweep you away, or do you want to fall into pestilence from the hand of the Lord? And this is not much of a choice here, you know, uh, and uh, um, so David says, let me just fall into the hands of the Lord. I mean, at least he has mercy. Don't let me fall into the hands of my enemy. That's the worst thing, because men are, 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 are really merciless. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. Seventy thousand men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand, stretching out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. Then David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O my Lord God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. And so David then built an altar on the threshing floor of Ornon. That threshing floor of Ornan is where the Temple Mount was then built. That was the peak of the mountain of Jerusalem. That's where the that's where the 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 uh, the Dome of the Rock stands today. This mosque, right at that same place. Now it's a little bit different because it used to be a mountain top with fields coming down that Herod cut off the top of that mountain. But on the same location is where the Temple Mount is even to this day. And David bought that field at that time. But you see what came upon David, what came upon David for a prideful attitude. And the Lord spoke to me about my prideful attitude and what was coming upon me. And so, you, you know, there, there are several there are several verses in the scriptures that, that talk about this sort of thing that talks about what we should do. So, in, for example, in, in in Proverbs eleven two, it says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Again and again there are verses on this. Jesus Jesus speaks of this as well. Jesus speaks of this in, in, in uh in, in Luke chapter fourteen, in Luke chapter fourteen, verse eleven. He Says for everyone, Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everything that I have lost in life that I can think of has been, has been because of pride come into my life. I'm just telling you. Everything that I've lost has been because of pride coming into my life. Thinking that I'm something when I'm not. Not even, I never even voiced it. But pride is so insidious, it can just come into me and I don't even have to voice it and God sees it. And rather than to fall on my knees and say, "Lord, forgive me for that, forgive me. If I let this thing fester and think about this thing and just let this thing develop, the scriptures say very clearly, pride goes before a fall, so I am here to confess to you the pride of my heart, the pride of my heart and uh, and and as soon as and I was up even even one day this week, early this week, um, I was up. Late into the, all through the middle of the night I was up, which for me is very unusual, just crying out to the Lord, what is it? And then it started coming to me, and then, then came to me this passage, and this is, this is the way the Lord speaks to me so often, is because when He speaks to me just through a thought, you know, sometimes that thought is of me and not of me, but when He speaks to me through a passage of Scripture, reminds me of a passage of Scripture. And then I go to that passage and then he just starts speaking to me. So as I read in First Chronicles chapter twenty one about David, about his life, and then it just started zeroing in on me. And and you know what happens in, in pride, if you're married, you bring your whole family into it as well when the when when uh, when you start losing out because of pride, your whole family gets affected. My wife has labored so hard for this class and so hard for students and given her herself. And she prays for them. I mean, these sheets that you fill out, I mean, I pray a little bit. She prays a lot. I mean, a lot over these sheets. She sees these problems and she's like, Jim, come here. Look, look at this. Look look at what this person's going through. Did you see their face on Sunday? This is why I'm like, I didn't even notice their face on Sunday, but she notices everything about students. She can just look at you and see struggles. I mean, she, she has this gift. I just look at you and I see people, you know, and she, but she, she sees what's happening in people's lives. And, and so she's poured herself out and then she, it's burdening her. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why are these things happening like this? And uh so she has paid the price too because of my sin of pride. So, so I went, I went, uh, uh, this, this morning to her early in the morning and I, And I shared with her what was going on and what I think it was. And I repented to her. I said, I am sorry. I mean, you've labored so much. And I brought you into this. So I apologized to her and we prayed together. This is the story of my life. This is the story of my life. Is that God does great things. And then my heart, being as wicked as it is, grabs hold of something that it ought not to grab hold of. And then the Lord disciplines And then there's recovery, but the recovery is never instant. I mean, it took me when my, my, my group ran out of money. I mean, I mean, it took me really over a year, maybe even two years to build it all back up and to pay all the debts back that I had incurred within my research group, you know, money that I had, you know, loaned from the department and to pay them back and do all of these things. This is not going to recover overnight, but I'm so relieved because in the Lord, there is forgiveness there is immediate forgiveness. David was able to go and to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. And that's where he said, I will not offer up to the Lord that which cost me nothing. He bought that land and he, he, he bought the animals and he, he made this offering. And that very location, that very location, which was the culmination of this sin of pride in David's life, became the absolute place where the temple was going to be built. Because remember that the the tabernacle was in Gideon, was in Gibeon. The tabernacle was in Gibeon, which is a a couple of miles away at that point. The tabernacle was not on where the temple mount is. That temple, then he knew exactly where to tell Solomon to build that temple. He accumulated all those things, but he didn't know where to build a temple. The Lord will rebuild He'll do great things. But I'm just telling you, this is, this is the story of my life. And the beautiful thing is that in Christ, we have forgiveness. In Jesus, because of his kindness, he brings us to this point. If you don't know Jesus, I beg you today to get to know him. We're going to have lunch in my home today. I ask you to come. I just want to tell you the story of what Jesus has done in my life. I want to tell you that story And it's just going to be the simple gospel message. Come hear that message and hear about Jesus because there is forgiveness in Him over and over again. And I see lives changed every week. I see lives changed when they come to salvation in Him. Come and walk with Him and understand and see that forgiveness. I urge you to come to my home today for lunch. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your mercies and your grace. I thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that I have in Christ. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. It is so good to walk in forgiveness. Lord, I pray for the believers who are here. That the glory of Christ would come through. The glory of Christ into their lives. Father, as they come to points in their lives that they would remember even this day and see the road to recovery. Father, I pray that you would take these young people and do a great work in their lives. And Father, for the unbelievers who are here today, oh Lord, draw them to yourself, I pray. Let the mercies and the grace of God be drawn into their lives today and save their souls. Father, save a soul today, I pray. And I offer this up to you.